remember when I was going through college and I really just could not touch my earnings, it was my little sister who was probably a senior in high school at that time who would give me money for gas. And so we as a family have really taken this responsibility to see it, to see all of us graduate as as a as a, as a team. So it's been five individuals working towards the exact same goal um, for the last almost eight years. And so the last one will graduate hopefully in May. Um, and that's when I think we'll we'll be able to breathe and, and get out of this um, almost machine of just being mindful of finances and, and saving as much as possible for our education. Welcome to episode 14 of Real Stories, Journeys of Financial Wellness. I'm your host, Crystal Lugazima. Our interview today features Kenya. Kenya grew up in El Salvador. Due in part to the violence in her native country, her family decided to immigrate to the United States when she was 11. Kenya's family did not have a legal status, and this reality shaped much of her experience growing up. She eventually became a DACA recipient, and this created opportunities when it came to her education. These same opportunities also impacted her finances, at times negatively. Through it all, Kenya has remained very tight with her family. It's inspiring to see the sacrifice that each of them have made to support one another. We'll start with Kenya's childhood and what she recalls when it came to money during her time in El Salvador. Thank you for joining us today, Kenya. Um, So glad to have you here today. And my first question for you, I'm going to kind of start things sort of chronologically. Um, So how was money talked about or viewed in your family growing up in El Salvador before you moved to the U.S.? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm excited to to have this conversation and uh, dive into a little bit about what my immigrant experience has been with money. Uh, in El Salvador, I don't know if it's because we navigate through a hierarchical culture um, or what what have you, but it, money was always something that my dad managed. So it wasn't um, something that was shared with my mom or my siblings uh, and I think because it was something that was so uh, almost hidden from us um, that we didn't really have a great deal of of interaction with money, um, which changed when we moved to the United States. Um, we definitely became more of a collective, um, more of uh, the, the decision when it came to money and spending really was, it, it involved all of us, even if we were little, um, but in El Salvador, I, I remember uh, I grew up when there was a different currency in El Salvador before we moved into dollars. And so I noticed that it was it was more available to us once we had when we had our own currency, which was known as Colon. 
in El Salvador. But as soon as we switched to U.S. dollar, I think it became evident that it, there was less money available at home. Um, so I think I might have been six or seven when that change took place. And I, and I remember noticing the difference because I would get let's say 50 cents daily for me to be able to buy something at, at school. And once we switched over to the U S dollar, then it became a quarter, which to me was like, I used to get 50 cents. Now I get 25 cents. <laughs> something isn't adding up. Um, but yeah, I think just because I was 11, I, I just paid attention that it was something that my dad managed and we just received uh, a little bit of it, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that was evident in our household. So you mentioned that the fact that things were hidden from you sort of changed when you moved to the U.S. How, how old were you when you moved to the U.S.? I was 11. So yeah. I'm the oldest of three. Yeah. And so at that point, did either of your parents teach you anything about money or did you observe any behaviors around money that influenced you? What, like, what were some of the lessons that you might've learned? Yeah. So I think we became very involved in those decisions because my parents didn't know English. So, uh, which I think it's something that it's an, it's an experience that is shared among immigrant children that, that you sort of, gain adult responsibilities, adult-like responsibilities, even if you're a child. So I was 11 and because I had to make calls to get an extension on a, like on a bill, um, I became very aware that money wasn't always available, even though that they worked each two jobs. Uh, I just noticed that it wasn't enough. Um, and so Something that I noticed um, was that they they try really hard to pay all of their bills, um, but there was times that were rough and bills didn't get paid. So I think from my parents, I learned that there's a great deal of responsibility that comes with money, uh, but there's also a great deal of stress. And so I noticed how stressed out they were about working and being able to uh, to provide for us. Um, and I think I internalized that feeling towards money because when I, uh, since I was the oldest, money has always formed me now that I have my own career. And, um, you know, I would say I have a pretty good salary. Money still something that causes me stress. And not because I don't have it, but I think it's because I watch my parents struggle so much with it. And so now that I'm an adult, I'm trying to understand how my behavior was shaped by their experiences and how do I accept that I'm not in their place. I'm not in a survival mode um, that we were when we came to the United States. And and to that end, right. So it, it sounds like there were times where there was struggle to, to make ends meet, especially mm -hmm. early on. Um, so in part of my research for this interview, I was delighted to find a blog that you had, uh, had written and, um, would you be willing to share the story about the time your family had fried eggs by candlelight? Oh, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So yes, I'm, I, I think because 
the woman that I am today was shaped by my immigrant experience. And um, and money was just scarce growing up. And to be honest, I feel like my family as a whole didn't get to a good place probably until I graduated college. And that's when we started seeing a change. So some of my childhood memories when we came to, to Iowa uh, from El Salvador um, are around how did we survive, um, you know, but just with not having money or the resources to, to live a decent life. So one of the, one of the memories I have um, present uh, in my, just in my everyday life is how there was a time, I think um, it was during the, we hadn't even been in the United States for more than 12 months. And um, as I mentioned, both of them, they were working two jobs. Uh, my dad was the maintenance uh, person in charge at a McDonald's by morning. And then he worked at Buffalo Wild Wings at night. My mom uh, was a housekeeper during the day. And then she closed the same McDonald's where my dad worked in the morning. She closed it at night. Um, so both of them earning, I think, seven twenty-five an hour. Uh, and there was it was a really rough time. We had recently just rented a house. And it was really hard for that month to pay the electricity bill. And it was during the summer because we weren't in school. And um, I was in charge of taking care of my siblings. So at that time, I was 11 and my brother was nine and my little sister was six. Um, so as an 11-year-old, I didn't know how to cook. <laughs> so I just boiled some sausages and made them hot dogs. And, you know, we used to think that that was the best meal ever. And I remember um, that everything just went silent. And we just saw a guy come out of the side of the house and left, got on his car and left. Um, later, when I spoke with my dad, I understood that that guy had been there to shut off our electricity. And so then I automatically started thinking, like, I don't know how I'm going to cook for my siblings today. And my parents are not going to be here until much later because of their jobs. Um, so when both of them came home, um, I was worried about, like, how are we going to eat? Like, what what can we make? And so um, there was a, I don't know, like, maybe like a grill that was that someone had made up. I think like they had constructed it before the, the family that lived in the house before us um, with just some bricks that were falling. So they put it back together, made a fire and then made us fried eggs for dinner. And I remember sitting in the back in that backyard of our house, completely pitch black because obviously we don't have lights. Um, and just thinking at that time as a child, I, I really couldn't articulate how grateful and how safe my parents made me feel during adversity. Um, and I just remember thinking that those were the best fried eggs I had ever tasted in my life. And I still haven't tasted any fried eggs um, like the ones we had at night in the dark because our electricity had cut off. And um, something that I think about often, and I think that's why I think about that memory is because I wish I could go back and have the words to thank them 
and thank them for not only bringing us to the United States, but for handling what it's like to be an immigrant in this country so gracefully and to not show us that they probably were scared too. So. Mm. So you, you like earlier on in that night, as you said, you had fear and then not that it went away, but there Mm -hmm. was just this feeling of safety Mm -hmm. that's in there. Um, Just to go back a little bit. I, I was curious if you noticed any differences between your native culture and then the culture as you spent some more time in the U.S. when it comes to beliefs around money? Hmm. Um, yes, I think in the United States, it's a taboo topic. It's, it's almost like shameful to talk about money, um, whether it's with your friends, your colleagues. I noticed that that's, uh, it's a conversation no one really wants to touch on because I don't know, maybe either you'll end up revealing too much about your lifestyle and your choices, and you don't want people to know that. In El Salvador, it's not like that. It's it's a conversation that people have freely, whether it is that the fact that you have it or you don't. I lived in one of the biggest cities in, in El Salvador um, called Santa Ana. So my neighborhood, I would say, was low income, um, almost middle class. Uh, and we were all aware that uh, people were just making en- ends meet. And um, so that's why I think it was easy to have conversations about money. And I noticed that even though all of our households were just making ends meet, that we had pretty good financial habits because money wasn't available. So we had them stretch and be as creative as possible with for what we have, what we had. But here, it's harder to have those conversations or it's even harder to tell someone that you're struggling. Whereas in Latin America, it's easier to have those conversations because it's almost expected that we're all struggling. We're all in the same boat. But in the United States, I think class is so... um, is so embedded in the conversations around our finances that we we don't talk about that. And I think it, and to a certain extent, even growing up, I noticed that we didn't even really talk about needing loans. You know, it was almost like um, there was some sort of shame around that piece. Um, and so when I got older and I noticed that loans were actually something good that you should probably get, to me, that was very odd because that's not the message that I had received from, from those around me. So there was this, this, I guess, reconciliation in your head around these different beliefs, right, as time went on. Um, what, what inspired you to, to share your story with us here today? What inspired me to share my story is that for me to be where I am today, um, it was a long journey. Um, my family, as a low-income family, uh, had to get really creative to pay for my college education out of pocket. Uh, same thing with my siblings. Uh, and, you know, technically, I shouldn't be here today. I should be another statistic uh, for an immigrant undocumented household 
Um, but my parents made so many sacrifices that I know other parents just need to hear and they need to know that it is possible. It's going to be hard. It's going to be very hard. Um, but we can be in a better place um, financially uh, or just we can get our children to a better place. It just comes down to prioritization. It, it's about like, I think I look at my parents and they really prioritized their families well-being and education because they they saw that as um as an avenue that could get us out of you know poverty out of housing insecurity um all these different things and so i think that's something sometimes you just need to hear that someone made it happen and, and that can give you a lot of hope that you know if you have children right now that are five six or ten that you may not be in the best place right now, but if you dedicate your time and look for resources and education for yourself, you will get to your children. You will give your children a different life than you had. You you alluded to some of the sacrifices that your family had made when it came to being able to afford to go to, to college. Can Can you tell me more about how that played out and like what were the different sources of whatever combination of financial aid, scholarships, loans that enabled you to be able to, to go to school? Yeah. So I have a, a pretty good example of, it wasn't until like two years that I knew my parents had made a lot of sacrifices, but I didn't know to what extent. So um, I think two to three years ago, I decided to get a Sam's club membership and um then I told my dad, hey, come with me so you can be on my membership. So he got his card with his picture. And then afterwards, when we were walking into the car, I, I noticed that he was um, somewhat emotional that he had a Sam's Club membership. So I asked him, like, you're, you're really excited for this membership. And he told me, no, it's just that I I always wanted a Sam's Club membership, but because there wasn't enough money or because we were prioritizing you three, there were a lot of things that, a lot of quote unquote privileges that your mom and I couldn't give ourselves. And so then I, and I stopped and thought that something as small as a Sam's Club membership was something that, you know, he, he would have liked to have in the past, but he couldn't because he needed to, to stay focused on the goal. Um, so I, I was, I, I always knew I wanted to go to college. Um, I do have a privilege that I'm not a first generation student. So my, both my parents went to college in El Salvador. Um, my mom didn't finish, but she went back to college when we were older. So I think like two years before we came to the United States, she was in college. And so when we came to the United States, college for me uh, wasn't a question. It was like, you're going to go and you better figure out how you're going to get there. And so um, I also had to do a little bit on my part. Um, so uh, as a DACA recipient, I couldn't get um, student loans. I couldn't. I could apply for FAFSA, but they would deny me every single time. Um, so I couldn't access 
uh, federal aid to be able to go to college. So um, my parents started working a lot. Um, actually, a few years before I graduated high school, they just knew that they weren't going to be able to give us education if they continue working for minimum wage at these restaurants. So they took a leap of faith and they started their own companies. So my mom cleaned houses uh, for many years. And then my dad started his home improvement company. So working uh, self-employed and his company grew so much that my mom decided to quit her cleaning business company. And then she learned how to do all the remodeling. So now my mom knows how to do anything from drywall to framing, anything you can think of. And so they did that together because they knew that they needed to increase the income to be able to, to, to support us. And so they were working on the side, saving up as much money as possible. When DACA was announced, it was before my senior year. So college for me was only became an like a possibility the last year of my high school year. So really that was almost like, okay, we need to figure out how we're going to pay for this. And um, I think at that time, um, I think my for uh, per year it was $12,000. I think like, no, $15,000 that we needed to come up with every year. And then my senior year, I applied to, I think every night I would come home and apply to a different private scholarship. And I was able to uh, get and receive $8,000 worth of private scholarships the first year. Um, then I worked three jobs that summer. So I worked um, as an administrative assistant at a nonprofit in the mornings, come home, change out of my uniform, um, get into my kitchen aid uniform at a retirement home. And then on the weekends, I would babysit. So if you ask me how or if I slept the summer of 2013, I'd probably tell you that I didn't because it was like four consecutive months just working and working and putting all of my money into a savings account. So that's almost the pattern that we continue uh, for my college education. Um, but I, you know, it, coming back for another semester was never guaranteed. And so um, it was really like when I tell you that we work as a collective, it was really a collective um, effort. I was thinking back, so my little sister is a senior in college now, same process. So until this semester, she had not registered on time for her school. So coming back to for another semester was not um, secured or guaranteed for her either. Um, but I remember when I was going through college and I really just could not touch my earnings. It was my little sister who was probably a senior in high school at that time who would give me money for gas. And so we as a family have really taken this responsibility to see it, to see all of us graduate as, as a, as a, as a team. So it's been five individuals working towards the exact same goal um, for the last almost eight years. And so the last one will graduate hopefully in May. Um, and that's when I think we'll, We'll be able to breathe and, and get out of this um, almost machine of just being mindful of finances and, and saving as much as possible for our education. 
It's amazing. It's amazing to think about how you were all supporting each other in different ways. Um, and, you know, after you completed your college and entered the real world, whatever mm -hmm. we call that, um, how was that transition when it came to your financial life? Um, it was interesting because, um, so all of the jobs that I had in college, I don't think I was earning more than $400 per check, like, you know, bi-weekly. So when I transitioned into a full-time job with benefits, I was the first family, I was the first person in my family to have health insurance. So that was a huge deal. Uh, it, it was, I think a little bit scary because um, I didn't want to mess up because the rest of them were counting on me. It did improve our life financially because now there was another income in our household. Um, you know, but then I also had to face the, the sad reality that is that I had gotten myself into debt um, in college, like credit card debt. And so, and he was, you know, I look back at it, I don't regret it because um, without getting into that debt, I probably wouldn't have been able to pay for the last, you know, few semesters of my college education. Um, but now that I was earning my own money, it was up to me, it was my responsibility to, to set things right um, and to get out of debt. And so I think I had uh, about $5,000 worth of debt and um, and it, I had to learn that by myself because, or I had to learn how to get out of that debt by myself because that's, those were tools that my parents couldn't help me with, or they didn't have the background information to, to guide me as I navigated through that. Um, thankfully I was able to, to finish paying everything off in 18 months, um, but I really had to knock on some doors and just ask, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I don't know how to get out of this or how to get this out of collection. Um, so it was scary just because I knew I had a lot of responsibilities pulling me in different ways. And so I had to be very uh, smart with now my money and um, and knew that, you know, it was really going to help me get out of this survival mode. But I needed to care. I needed to take care of my my debt first. Um, and so that's when I went into my credit union and I started asking questions. Um, and it was, I thinking back, it, it was scary to talk about those, those items, especially when people know you and there's, there's a sense of sh like shame that comes from, or sometimes you even feel, or I felt like, how could I be so, dumb to get into that much debt, right? And so I just had to push through those feelings um, to do that. And, you know, in 18 months, I was very proud to do that. And, and now I'm in a place where I'm no longer in survival mode. Um, so I'm learning about, okay, so how can I make money be my friend? And that's something that I fear. And uh, that's something that I'm all, I'm constantly being afraid that I'm not going to have enough because that's what I grew up with and what I, what I grew up seeing. Um, so now I'm entering the stage of feeling a little bit 
more calm about when it comes about money, but also how do I prepare for the future? Because for a long time, I've just been taking care of the present. So when it came to paying down some of the, the debt that you described there, and you mentioned some of them you, you um, had to bring out of collections, um, what, like from a practical matter, like how, how did you, did you pay it off in full? Did you end up negotiating with them? Did the credit union, uh, other than advice, assistance, some other way, like how did, how did that play out? Yeah, I didn't negotiate because I didn't know that was a possibility. <laughs> and so um, what I did, I was just, I just made a, a, a payment plan. So it was like with like four different companies. So a payment plan and really sacrificing myself um, for those 18 months because I knew I could get it done, but I wasn't going to get it done if, if I kept ignoring those calls. Um, so what my credit union did that was really helpful was they helped me understood, they helped, they helped me understood and interpret my credit report because to me that was so scary. And I, like I said, like I couldn't go to my parents because they weren't familiar with that either or how to interpret that information. And so um, something I had completed before I started college was a five-week, I had completed a five-week financial education course. Um, And this was through the Iowa Credit Union League. So they used to have an IDA program, so an individual development account. Um, and so what they did, that was, it, it helped you save money, but then they would also match your savings. And that's how I was able to, to use that money for my tuition too. And so I remember back of everything I learned in those courses, but I had never really had to put those, my learnings into actions. And now I was in the place where, like, okay, now I can't ignore everything I learned from this education, five course education, financial education piece. And so um, I, I knew that the first step was just to get started. And I think that's sometimes the hardest step for, for many individuals that don't know how to, don't know how systems work. So for me, it was just, um, I didn't have the money to pay it all at once. So I knew that even if I did $50 a month, that it was going to make a big difference for bringing down that debt. And you, you had mentioned that your youngest sibling is um, nearing uh, her completion of, of college coming up, uh, which is really exciting. Um, I imagine that because she, I think you said she was six when, when she mm-hmm. moved. And so I imagine that her concept of money at that age would have been different than yours at, a, at an older age. Um, so just from your vantage point, how do you guys view money differently? And if, if you do view money differently, um, what might, or what do you think might influence these differences? Yeah, that's a great question because we often talk about that with her actually. Um, it's usually her criticizing my, my ways (laughs) on how do I handle my own finances I think because I was the oldest and I saw money as something that was used to take care of others, I'm very quick of utilizing my money for others' well-being. 
And so for her, so it's more about taking care of the present. I think because her, because she may not have a lot of memories of when money was really scarce at home, she views money more towards preparing for the future. Uh, and so she is an excellent saver. And that's an area where I struggle. Um, so she could, because of school, she's had to save constantly. Like she's always saving. Um, and so if she has something in her savings, she will not touch it at all. And for me, if I have something in my savings, but a family member um, comes to me with a problem, quickly make that change into my account and, and help them in that area. Um, which I think, you know, we need a little bit of a balance. Um, so I think um, because she was so much younger when she came to the United States, uh, she is able to, to focus more on the thriving piece of our life rather than survival mode. Um, so she just has really, she, her perspective is, um, I wouldn't say more relaxed, but more structure. I think that's what, that's how I would describe it. I think she has more structure when it comes to her finances and because I witnessed chaos and I can be a little bit more chaotic when it comes to thinking of my finances. And I wonder if that's similar in other immigrant households too, where the oldest witness a little bit more of that chaos and we internalize that in ourselves as well. And then our younger siblings really have a chance to be more free and, and to, to have more choices than the oldest does in our household. So along the, the same lines of, of what you were describing earlier with some of your different philosophies at, based on your experience, of course, um, is there one money decision or habit perhaps that you regret? And if so, what did you learn as you reflect back? That's an excellent question. I think... Sometimes I say I don't regret it, but sometimes I do. Um, I think um, when I received DACA and I had a social security number, I wish I would have been more careful on the accounts that I opened because a social security number opened the doors for me and just different offerings that existed out there, such as credit cards, you know, everything is thrown at you because that social security number can open so many doors. So I was 19 at the time. Um, I wish I would have had more education. I, I wish I would have, I wish someone walked me through all of the door, all of the doors that were going to be open for me because of that nine digit number. But because these doors were open for me, it didn't mean that I needed to go into all of them. And so um, you know, and I, and I think of, um, many immigrants that adjust their statuses to that go from maybe having an ITIN number. And as soon as they get that social security number, those, do those doors will also open for them. But, um, I do regret utilizing or just getting so many credit cards off the bat, just because I could, just because I was the only one in my family that could do that. So 
you talked about some regrets from a number of years back. Is there anything right now money related that's currently keeping you up at night or at least that you think about at some point? Yeah. Okay. Great question. I think right now, something that I regret is um, not having saved enough. So our family, the goal was that um, we were all going to stay, we were all going to live in the same house so we could help pay for my sister's college education. So for her, um, a academic year is $18,000. So right now it's really taking all of us like support to be able to, to pay off her tuition every single year. So I wish I would have built a savings habit earlier um, because now I'm planning for when I move out. So I'm planning on moving out uh, sometime between the first or second quarter of next year. And to move out, you need savings. I'll need to buy furniture. I'll need to do all these things. And I wish I would have thought about this moment right now so I could have started saving, even if it was $100 a month, um, so that I could have somewhere where to start now that I'm planning on moving out. Um, because right now I'm barely starting because I'm barely you know, realizing that it's so it's happening so fast now. Whereas before I used to see it like, oh, it's going to happen in three years. So I got time. Not building that savings habit, savings habit earlier in my mid-20s is one of my biggest regrets. So you're teeing up all my next questions here. So I imagine that some of your goals in the coming months is to build up savings to help prepare for your, your desired move. Um, do you have any other financial goals in mind in the short term? And also, what are some of your long-term dreams when it comes mm -hmm. to your money? A short-term goal for me would be to afford to move out, afford to buy all of the furniture that I need, but also not have that move leave my savings account in zero. Because, you know, it's really hard to start from, from zero again, and I don't want that. So my short-term goal is to save enough money um, so that I still have some savings left after making that move. Long-term goal. So it's funny. People ask me, like, where do you see yourself in five years? And sometimes I say, I don't know. But I want to prepare for that unknown. Um, and long-term, I will, I, at some point in my life, I would like to have a business. And I would like to be able to finance uh, most of my business. I would like to have a coffee shop uh, someday in some, at some point in my life. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I, I would like to have my own money to put down as an investment too. So not just have it all come from a financial institution. Um, Creaky house. I think I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave in some of it just because I think it, it does paint the picture of a sacrifice you're making. Yeah. <laughs> it might get annoying to the listener if it's like everybody. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I, I would say just being able to open my own business at some point, because 
I saw how successful my parents were by being self-employed and having their own business. Um, so I would like to do that at some point in my life too. Another short-term goal would be I had to get a car last year. So I have four more years to pay it off. So my goal is to pay it off at least six months before, just at least. So that would be in the next four years. So I, I know that you're an advocate for Latinx communities. Um, before I ask some follow-up questions related to that, can you just share a little bit about your your work um, and or your uh, activism when it comes mm -hmm. to supporting those communities? In 2012, when I was granted DACA, I the college really be, became a pot, like a reality for me, but I quickly noticed that other Latinx DACA undocumented students didn't have the same luck that I was having and just so many different doors opened for me. Um, and so I just started having coffee dates with different students that their college career counselors at school didn't know how to help them. And so I, I think like a week I was having three different coffee, coffee dates with different students that were at that time I was already a freshman in college and they were probably like juniors and seniors. Um, so I always told myself, I'm not going to be an activist. I'm not going to be an activist. I don't want to get political, which is funny because of who I am today. And so at 19, I just, I knew that the, the, the term or title of an activist came with a great deal of responsibility and scrutiny. And I didn't, I didn't want that for myself, but the need was so evident that no one was talking about undocumented students and the, in the lack of resources that existed in Iowa. So slowly I just started to just do more and get more involved in education access and education equity and to my surprise, education is a very political subject, <laughs> and I didn't know that. And so, especially public education. Uh, and so I just started to realize that there wasn't other individuals talking about the immigrant experience as honest and raw like I was. So it was always like immigrants make our country better. Immigrants like are keeping towns alive in Iowa, but it was never about, okay, but we don't have the resources that they need in order to, to get out of poverty or to access healthcare. So long story short, five years passed and I was very active. I was, uh, I became almost a go-to person for, for these issues. Um, and and I just haven't stopped since. So it started out in education and that has taken me to, to organize in the state of Iowa, um, to lobby against anti-immigrant uh, laws in our state. We've been successful with some, but not always, unfortunately. So um, I think it was always in me that I, I, I can't stay quiet in moments of injustice. Uh, because I know what it's like to to live in fear and to to live with such uncertainty in, in this country. 
And so with your frequent interactions with the Latinx community, particularly um, immigrant communities, what frustrations did or do you hear when it comes to handling money? And as sort of an add-on to that, like, have there been any new challenges that have emerged since the pandemic started? Mm-hmm. You know, what I, what I see, I think what I notice is that um, newer or newly arrived immigrants are still utilizing your alternative financial institutes, like financial institutions. I don't know if that, that would be the correct term, but um, your payday lenders, your check cashing places. And those are the places that my parents used to frequent for the at least the first three years that we were in the United States because nobody else was building a relationship with us. I think credit unions have come a long ways to, to build that gap. Um, but I do think that now some of those challenges are, um, I think they want those resources. I just don't think they know that exist. So I think the challenge is the lack of awareness of everything that they have access to, especially with the financial institutions that have taken the step to make like their products and services accessible. I think it comes, I think the lack of awareness comes from the language barrier too. We need programs that are in Spanish still. We need, um, you know, we talk about Latinx millennials and Gen Z, like they, 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 they have, they don't need information in Spanish, but what about their parents? Like there's still a need for information to be accessible in language. Um, And I think that's the, that's the biggest hurdle that I've seen um, throughout the years of my interaction with the community. I think now um, because of this pandemic and families that did not receive, uh, you know, aid from the government, such as ITIN holders or individuals that were married to an undocumented immigrant that has left families struggling, struggling um, behind probably in more debt uh, than before. So then I, you know, I'm wondering how are financial institutions going to to tackle this? How are they going to acknowledge that there was a big population, there was a big segment of our population who didn't receive any support? I mean, U.S. citizens barely received one assistance, like one-time assistance to, to to get out of the the impact of this pandemic, but we have families that didn't receive anything. Um, And so now the challenge is, is again, what resources exist for the family and are those resources in language for them to know that they are there? Um, I know that there were a couple of nonprofits that were able to fundraise to be able to provide some relief for this family, but it's not enough. And, for example, in, in the state of Iowa, more than half of the people that rent are not able to pay their rent right now. So thinking back up the housing insecurity that I faced growing up from, you know, being a family that rented for more than a decade, you know, that I'm sure that's causing a lot of stress, hence many um, health issues just because when you're worrying about money and you don't know what to do 
that impacts your health as well. So um, yeah, Latinx families, immigrant families are, 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 I think are just surviving with little to no resources right now. Just a clarifying question. You mentioned for more than a decade, your family has rented. So did, did you guys end up buying a, a home at some point? Mm-hmm. And so what was, how old were you? And like, what was that experience like um, in terms of what your role was in it and just sort of that, that transition from renter to a family that owned in this case? Yeah. Um, so it was, it was recently. Um, so um you know, it was a credit union that opened their doors for for item mortgages. So that's how it was a, that was able to be accessible to to my parents. Um, and I think the transition was hard because we had a really well, it was needed, but it was um, you know, it, it didn't come after many years of struggling with uh, renting homes that weren't always in the best shape, and then the landowners not really caring about that because. You know, they 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 see that that's your only option, um, and I can't even imagine what that's like with other in other states. So, um, thankfully, my parents have been able to build a pretty good relationship with credit union with the credit union. So that's how they were able to have those um, that accessible to them. And it's funny because um, I was thinking about it one of these days. Like my parents have never had an account with a bank either. So they've always been like loyal, like credit union members um, because they've taken a step to, to build a relationship with them and make their products accessible to, to item holders. Um, so it was recent, but I, I can guarantee you that it's brought a lot of peace <laughs> to, to this household, a lot of peace of mind. And it's taken that stress that was very prominent before in their lives. So sort of it's brought a measure of stability, both mm-hmm. financial and otherwise. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, circling back to your work um, with Latinx immigrant communities, um, could you share a little bit about your work on inclusion uh, with credit unions um, and what inspired you to get into this work? Yeah. So it's interesting. I I didn't know that my career was going to play out this way, but so I started my advocacy and organizing a path when I recently had graduated high school. So many, many years ago. Um, And so the improvement of life for the Latinx community has always been something that moves me and it's a passion of mine. Um, so now I'm in the career um, that I get to help credit unions assess how inclusive they are of um, and how welcoming they are of an immigrant Latinx population. Uh, so something that, and you know, I think I have definitely grown in this role, but I think what makes me such um you know, such a passionate consultant is because I know the impact that the credit unions can have in their members. So we review their internal policies, um, their personnel, like who 
do they have the right people? Have they hired the right people to be able to help the community in language? Um, and then also reviewing their products and services. Um, are they accessible to an ITIN uh, holder? Is the language that you're using accessible to describe these type of products and services? So today, um, all of my weeks, every day is spent with having these discussions with credit unions and making sure that they're doing it from a culturally relevant standpoint. Um, so keeping in mind that Latinx communities are going to be very different than, uh, than their traditional members. Um, so how can you adapt to the market? How can you make, how can you make the changes uh, to, to open your doors for them and not wait for them to come to you and adjust to your processes or and adjust to your culture? Um, because that's, that's not going to get you the trust from the community. And, and it comes down to building trust. So I help credit unions figure out how would be the best what method would get them to build a long-lasting relationship with, with members? So that brings me to my next question. So at Green Path, we have something called a big, hairy, audacious goal or BHAG. What mm -hmm. would be your big, hairy, audacious goal for the work you do on inclusion? What, what would that look like? I, that's an excellent question. I think my vision for that would be that low-income, undocumented households have an opportunity to own their own homes and to get to be a homeowner because that is a way that they can build wealth, but also it's a, it's a way for them to have some sort of security that we, security that we don't have in other aspects of our life, just because, um, even as a DACA recipient, um, my stay in the United States isn't guaranteed, right? So we've seen what's happened with, with DACA itself. But I think homeownership will get many families to meet their goals, to, to meet all of their financial goals, um, and to, to build wealth, to build generational wealth. Uh, and so my... I think my vision for, for my community would be for everyone to be able to have a roof over their heads that they can call their own, that isn't someone else's, that isn't uh, something that could be taken away from them at any point. And so if we can take care of their housing needs, then we'll be able to meet all of their other educational, aspiration, entrepreneurial uh, objectives if we can just get them that peace of mind. I definitely would sign up for a world that looked like that. Um, <laughs> is is there anything else either about your work uh, with the the communities that you advocate for, or just with your personal money story that you'd like to share that I haven't asked? Mm -hmm. I think it's important for everyone to to know that the Latinx community is quite complex. That it's you can't paint us with the same brush. Brush. So, for example, um, I'm Salvadorian, and my financial habits are going to differ from a household that may be Mexican or um, Venezuelan. So, the political uh, 
climate in our countries have shaped the way that we act, the way that we move through this world too. Um, levels of education are also going to have an impact. So making sure that they have resources that can speak to the many different experiences of our community will be, be extremely important. And I can't emphasize the piece of having education that is in language accessible to, to communities. So whether it's in Spanish or Burmese or um, French, I think the more that our community gets younger, I think the more we'll start to um, move in other different directions, but just keeping in mind that we still have a large population of our segment of our community that is going to need extra help and they're going to need financial education. They're going to need financial resources for them to, to learn how to navigate the many complicated systems that exist in the United States. And one of them is the financial industry and financial services too. Well, it certainly seems like they have an ally in, in yourself. Um, yeah. <laughs> the best of your abilities to do it. And yeah. you've certainly learned a lot in your own journey. And as you said, you're you're still right in the middle of that journey. So I uh, I wish you nothing but the best. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I know your younger sister is through an unprecedented time. What a what a interesting time to be thinking about graduating the uh, college, both from the economic standpoint and just yeah. everything else going on with the pandemic. But um, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Omari and Alexandra, and there's a lot of themes that, that came out of uh, today's conversation. Um, one of the things I, I, I wanted to, to lift up uh, was just, you might have heard at the very beginning of the podcast, uh, a snippet I had pulled out from a conversation that, that Kenya had, uh, where she described the support her family and not just her parents, but her siblings, her younger siblings um, had provided to enable her to complete her, her college journey. Um, it even included her then 16 year old sister contributing to her household expenses. And it just strikes me is not just, just the amazing emotional support um, that, that her family provides to each other, especially as now her younger sisters, uh, her younger sisters about to finish school but just from a practical standpoint, how I, I just simply don't think it would have been possible for them to have finished school without that kind of environment. You know, given the situation with their eligibility for certain types of student aid, um, I don't I don't think they were eligible for federal loans, for example. Um, if they didn't all pull their money together, you know, would Kenya have had the choice of either having to take a lot longer to graduate, not being able to graduate, maybe getting into much further credit card debt. Um, and so it's just really inspiring to see how just the power of this collective that she describes of, of what that's able to, to, to do. Um, one thing that I would just throw out there uh, for our listeners is obviously everyone's going to be in a, in a different situation, but just 
to have those lines of communication, starting with your family, um, you know, depending on the dynamic, if you are open, if you are the, the, the student, you know, having that conversation with your siblings, if you have them with your, with your parents about how you might be able to afford to go to school, you might be the first person in your family going to school. So it may be that others in your family have not gone through that route. And so the other thing that you, you might consider is just who in your community might you speak to? Is there um, someone that's been on that journey already? Are there organizations that are already lifting that up? So I think communication is is so key with that. And I know that that ties into some of what, what each of you wanted to, to, to speak about. Thanks, Chris, for having me back. Uh, this is Alexandra, for those of you listening. Um, I, myself, I... I came to the United States from Spain when I was about six years old, and I have a Spanish father and an American mother. And um, this, over my life, this has really driven me, driven a desire in me to want to connect with other people who are children of immigrants. And um, and in turn, I then have done some work locally in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I live now. And when um, Kenya mentioned how she finally received that nine digit social security number and when she then later on when she was like looking back wishing that she had had that guidance of people to tell her maybe how to use it to to um create success for herself in the future of how to build credit and um how to avoid debt um that's that's something that i've heard a lot from other kids of immigrants i mean when when our parents when parents don't grow up in the United States, they naturally then don't know how the system works um, until they figure it out for themselves or when sometimes w- with Spanish speaking parents when their kids help them figure things out and um, so naturally they just they didn't grow up and have to figure out how to um, like go through the student loan process like Kenya did and how to apply for colleges in the American way. Like it's just different. And I've heard from a lot of children of immigrants that that's something that's, that's wanted is that like support. And so I was really excited when, um, and impressed when Kenya, uh, talked about how she then after like her application to college and, um, looking back to some of the other kids, that like went went to her high school who were living through similar experiences that she lived through she went back and she actually um sat down with some of them and gave them the knowledge and the understanding of what she'd learned um that's something that i think is so important to um provide people that we see that could use some of the understanding of the lived experiences that we've lived and to impart that on them um i think that's so important and so I guess I would suggest to anybody listening that if if you see if there's some lived experience that you've you've had and you see somebody who is like you who have had who's had similar lived experiences and maybe just hasn't gotten as far as you have and doesn't have that generational um expertise that like Americans tend to have in this country then um would you be willing to like ask them if they would like some mentorship or to understand the process of either credit or something else that that you've been able to navigate for yourself or on the flip side if if you find that 
like you don't have a support system to help you figure out how credit works or how to buy a house or any other financial goal that you have and you know of somebody who um who has navigated that and you trust them because they they have had similar lived experiences to you i would um highly recommend reaching out to them and just saying like hey um i heard you bought that house and i'm i'm like i i'm so excited that you were able to do that and i would love to learn how you did that um for myself just to try and figure out how to get to that point would you be willing to tell me like your story and how you did that um just hearing it from another person instead of maybe going to Google and like Google searching it, like those things can all be helpful. Um, but a lot of those processes from my experiences can, can be different from community to community. And so if you can help have somebody actually help you like know like which bank to go to or um, which teller to talk to, um, those things can, can really make it easier just to have somebody who will, who will help you through that process. So I would highly recommend it. Omari, I, I know Kenya's experience with her activism work really resonated with you, if you might speak to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was moved by her entire story, but um, her, the activism piece definitely stood out to me for a few different reasons. Um, not only because uh, I spent time as a young person, a young adult in my first foray into the job world as a, as a community, organize, uh, community organizer, not around financial, um, financial education necessarily, uh, but around um, like representation, community representation as, at a, a grassroots level um, to help identify problems that needed to be solved and 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 be a liaison between the community and the the powers that be that can make some of those changes happen not only that but also um some of the direction or the direction that green path is looking to move in now as it pertains to how we show up in underrepresented or underinvested communities really mirrors a lot of the stuff that uh, kenya was talking about um, recognizing the reality that many folks that that are that are representative of these neighborhoods and these communities uh, have experiences, biases, um, systemic disadvantages that make their entry point into navigating financial services, navigating financial a path towards financial wellness makes that entry point different um, and. It felt like to me part of what her activism was, was um, helping these financial institutions recognize what those spaces are, what those gaps are and how they might fill in the gaps. And that feels really, really familiar and it feels really um, inspiring actually. Um, and, and it's where Green Path wants to go with some of the stuff that we're doing, whether it be with Detroit Voices and some of the other ways that the education team and marketing team are reaching out um, to to authentically meet the needs of our clients uh, of diverse backgrounds. So I was, I felt really moved and motivated by that. One of the other things that I felt really connected to was, and, and, I, and I'll admit this was not an experience that I had as a young person. I was, uh, even though I grew up, you know, African-American young man in the city of Detroit, um, I, I was blessed to be raised in a fairly stable community fairly uh, stable working middle-class household. But 
uh, it was not foreign to me, the idea. I have friends and cousins who, uh, whose parents would, would have to make up stories or, or make adventures around um, what in reality was a light bill getting cut off or um, a phone line or a cable bill getting cut off where the links that the parent might have to go to to uh to sort of uh keep the veil of innocence over a childhood um when you are experiencing financial hardship it, it really feels like an impossible from from my perspective an impossible goal but so many parents of color so many parents uh who come from you know disenfranchised communities find a way to do that. And the story that she told about the candlelight fried eggs was really reminiscent of that. And it was very moving in the sense that her, her family, the leadership role that she had to step up into being um, sort of thrust in that position, um, how she took that on was really, really incredible. So I felt very connected to that piece of her story. Is there any implications for what you just shared with what our listeners might do? Yeah. Um, in terms of, of what you might, I mean, if if you're someone who feels connected to this, right, if you're someone who is a person of color, um, someone who may be from or feel like they, they represent an underinvested experience or come from an underinvested experience, um, recognize that I would ask you to recognize um, that you're not alone uh, and that there are um well, I would say recognize that there are opportunities for for you to have needs met with with organizations that are doing this work. And there are some, but to be fair, there's a lot more work that needs to be done along those lines. Um, so I think it's a good opportunity to use your platform in whatever way you can, whether it be conversations um, in your community, using social media, even talking to some of the some of the institutions that you frequent. Um, continuing to raise the awareness that uh, and the importance of uh, recognizing the differences in the experiences of these communities such that there can be equitable solutions in place or equitable solutions in development. So yeah, just continue to use your your platform and whatever we can, whether it be a social media uh, post or uh, in your community at your church, wherever your communal space is, um, to continue to raise awareness around how important it is to recognize the differences in the experiences that these communities have, these communities have, and how that impacts your journey towards financial wellness. And if there's any opportunity to create programs or create um, experiences that highlight and uplift and try to bridge that gap, um, that's what we need to be. So any any opportunity that you have to to continue to vocalize that message is going to be extremely helpful. Alex, I, I know there was a certain part of Kenya's story uh, that resonated with you, um, and that was uh, her parents had utilized an ITIN number to take out their mortgage to, to purchase the family's first home. And I know you've had a lot of experience working under that those types of, of situations. Yes, Chris, thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, when I heard Kenya say that her parents were able to purchase a home being iTunes holders, I got really excited. Um, I, 
I've helped um, quite a few people try to understand credit and how to navigate purchasing a home, being ITIN holders, and it can be quite a process and it can be incredibly rewarding depending on the opportunities that have uh, that are available in each um, community. And when when I heard Kenya's dream that home ownership is accessible accessible for immigrant families, um, I agree with that completely. I think home ownership can prov- provide stability. It can provide an opportunity to grow um, generational wealth. Just kind of even like Kenya's family, where. Um, her parents were able to purchase the home, and then they all together were able to support one another to get through college. And then with those college degrees, that cr- creates opportunity. And with that opportunity, I, I mean, so much can be done. And so um, I I just truly believe that home ownership can be such a great opportunity for immigrant families. And it's not always easy Um And I think that there are, it is possible. Um, So if if there are listeners out there who have family members who do hold ITIN numbers um, and they've maybe not considered home home ownership before or they tried it in the past and it didn't work out, I would highly encourage you to consider it again. Um, So I would recommend going to a local credit union that um, has a lot of Spanish-speaking staff and consider and ask them, like, what type of loans do you have available for ITIN holders? Um, What are the requirements of those loans? And how does one obtain those requirements? Um, because the the loans that are available, I, I find um, they do change over time. So what might have been there five years ago might not be available today, but what's available today might might be different in five years from now too. Um, so the opportunities are constantly changing, and I would encourage people to keep trying and looking into the opportunities that are out there. And I do know that we have a number of um, Spanish-speaking counselors that have um, – have ha- have experience with that as well. So um, you're always welcome to give Green Path a call to discuss um, our experiences with, with that as well. Thank you both uh, for your thoughts, uh, for the, your ideas for how our audience uh, might take action uh, towards improving their financial health uh, based on what we've learned from Kenya's story. Thank you. A quick request. Would you be willing to share your thoughts about this in future episodes? To complete our audience survey, please see the show notes or visit www.greenpath.com slash real stories and click on the purple Take the Survey button. That's a wrap on episode 14. Here's hoping each of you enjoy your journey of financial wellness as much as your destination. Welcome back, Shiro.